Side Yard Sidebar listeners, this week we visit with Yurik Hansen. He's a freelance choreographer and dancer of ballet with the Idaho Dance Theater. He also is a barista at Dawson Taylor Coffee downtown Boise. We had an amazing visit with him. He is so fun to talk to. He has so much joy for what he does, and he's going to share that with you in this episode. Let's go! Welcome to the Side Yard Sidebar. Grab your drink of the night and pull up a chair. Make yourself comfortable as we bring you discussion with Substance and some of the best visitors from Boise and beyond. This is the Side Yard Sidebar. Welcome to the Side Yard Sidebar. You're here with your host, Zach, your co-host and producer, Dusty, and we are so happy to have you here. We are in the holiday season. It is officially started, and we are glad to have you listening to us uh, during the 2019 holiday season. Dusty, how are you feeling tonight? I'm feeling good. I've had a headache all day. You know that when you wake up and it just sits there all day? Head fog. Maybe I'm stressed. So I don't know. So I'm... Crushing water today. There you go. I think I'm at 80 ounces right now. Wow. Just hydrating. That's good. <laughs> I'm doing what I can do. Did you take any uh, Advil or Tylenol? I took two uh, ibuprofen, oh, but man. they didn't okay. do anything. Garlic and ginger. Garlic and ginger? And yeah. Ca- and cayenne, lemon, honey, and a shot. Okay. Dude, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, so that's how I'm feeling, but I, I, I will be feeling good soon, I hope. And we want to um, <laughs> welcome our visitor, Yura Kansen. Thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, we're already getting some commentary Word. <laughs> on how to deal with the day-long headaches. Let's I love it. go with Drink of the Night. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Let's go with Drink of the Night, Dusty. You're, you said you're slamming water. Anything else? Yeah, I'm having a, um, I think it's Pinot Grease from a Boda Box. Oh, okay. Just a little bit. Some wine. Yeah. There you go. Just a little bit of white wine. With your water consumption. With my water. It's yeah. interesting because unplanned, then I also went with wine. And we both That's of us wine? rarely do wine. Yeah, yeah it's what? just a wine spritzer. We introduced it in the summer. And then I was driving over here and I thought, oh, I'll just get one drink for the for the podcast. And I got the St. Chappelle Wild Huckleberry Spritzer. Just a wine spritzer, and uh, we nice. kind of did that in the summer on one yeah. of the episodes. And there's a blood orange one that's really good too. Yeah, it tastes really good. So I went with that. Yurik, what are you going with tonight? I'm drinking a gingerberry kombucha. And you said that's your drink. Like, is that your drink of choice all the time? Or no, that's my drink of choice when I've eaten too much pie over Thanksgiving break. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I like it. Balance out the sugar intake and caffeine and alcohol intake. There you go. Which is minimal, but yeah. So but cl- still. clearing stuff out with the kombucha. Yeah, yeah. It helps, it helps work that stuff through. There you go. Sweet. All fermented foods, man. All fermented foods are good for you. Nice. Good. <laughs> well, well, we'll jump, fermented, so. uh We'll jump right into it. And the one thing you're, that we do with all of our visitors is allow a little bit of time to kick things off with just a short bio of, of introducing who you are to our visit or to our listeners. Um, and so the floor is yours. Let us know a couple minutes of who you are, and uh, then we'll go into some questions from there. Who am I? Who am I? It's going to get deep, huh? Right, yeah. <laughs> right off the bat. Can't help it. I'm a dancer. I'm a dancer, I guess. That's what I. That's who I am, I guess. Okay. Um, 
person raised in Idaho, born in Moscow, to professional ballet dancing parents who chose to live in Idaho because they put money on property here rather than in the uh, dance company had formed itself, which at that point was called American Festival Ballet. It might have been called something else when they joined in 70, I think 77. Um, yeah, so raised in the theater and on property in the mountains and going to school once school happened in Boise at Pierce Park, then Hillside, then Capitol. Okay. Or Crapital, as Crapital, some of us called it. As I called it. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is awesome. Wait, That's wait, my did you go to Capital? Man. No, I went to Boise High. Oh, nice. <laughs> Dude, I went to Pierce Park, Hillside, and then Capital. Nice. When this did you graduate? This is awesome. Uh, 03. 03. Okay. I was, would have been 2000, but I dropped out two months before the end because I was really annoyed that I hadn't really learned anything in three years. I didn't seem to learn anything new in school after eighth grade. Like, okay. it was like, I was hanging out at the college a lot with, so. Little tangent. Let's tangent. <laughs> no, Let's that's go. fine. Uh, my parents left what once was American Festival Ballet became Ballet Idaho. Later, they left American Festival Ballet to start Idaho Dance Theater. I think in '89, um, and then shortly after that, my mother got a job at Boise State, being the director of dance for the theater department. So I went from being raised backstage of a ballet company, like pure ballet company, to then backstage of a contemporary ballet modern whatever each individual choreographer wanted to create company. And also the theater department at Boise State, Shakespeare Festival, Opera Idaho, in a lot of ways, I was around a lot of that. I had to grow up listening to certain musicals that are always stuck in my head. <laughs> um, so you spent a lot of your time there and not a lot at high schools or at high school? When I was in high school, I only yeah. spent time in high school when I was required to be in high school <laughs> okay. other than uh I loved track and field I was a long jumper and triple jumper and did the 200 meter sprint yeah loved until 11th grade when skateboarding way took over everything because <laughs> at that point I was starting to be able to do cool stuff like crook grinds and 360 flip nose manuals and all sorts of fun stuff you know yeah all until right. I started dancing and then sprained my ankle right before a show and then had to do the whole show with my foot not being able to point, you know. So it was, I had it wrapped the whole time, and that took two-ish, three-ish years to heal. Really? Though things like that never actually heal when it's ligament, complete ligament damage. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. So you, go or I was gonna say, your parents uh, were in the profession. And at what age did you get involved in it? Like, was it just from basically birth, or? And also, like, as you got involved in it, when did you realize that you enjoyed it and, like, you wanted to pursue it? I didn't realize I enjoyed it or wanted to pursue it truthfully as something I was going to do until I dropped out of high school. That's why I dropped out, actually. I had already done my first professional show. So training-wise, I started training at, like, 11 or 12 at the Summer Dance Festival at Boise State, which my parents created. Um, Idaho Dance Theater... Boise State University, summer dance was a three-week intensive ballet class for the men, men's class for the women, point class, then to partnering class. And then we went into jazz, hip-hop, back then, tap, West African, um, all the different styles of dance that we could get. But it was also a choreography festival. So on top of taking these classes, we were learning dances to be performed at the end of the three weeks, which then later turned into two weeks just for the modern world's flow of time, <laughs> yeah. in essence. Um, 
so it was really professionally driven, but that was the only training I did. That was the only dance training I did until I got on stage as my for my first professional show, and then it was like, oh, this is what I want to do. You know, I was a martial artist. I did skateboarding. My family is extremely athletic in every facet, and dance just happens to be the one facet of movement that incorporates more of the entire psyche and person and energy and soul of what it is to be alive and then share with another human rather than trying to win something over another human like sports tend to be. You don't win anything in dance. That's always a joke in, for people who rush in music while dancing. It's like you're not going to win by getting there faster than the music. You're not going to win by getting there faster than the rest of the dancers. The only way you win is by being so present in space that you are being that character and everybody's moving kinesthetically aware together and sharing that with an audience. Huh. You know? <laughs> That's an interesting... I've never thought of it that way. As athletics is you're trying to win something and and in the arts, you're sharing something, I think you right. could say. And when all your training is... You're trying to attain these... Especially with classical ballet. You're trying to attain feats of shape and alignment with centrifugal force and you have to have a body powerful enough and aligned enough structurally to put your entire structure into a single point of the ball of your foot and spin an exact amount of times that you choose in relation to the music while keeping your face to the audience the whole time using a spot which can as a technique can help control how fast or slow you turn um it takes a lot of understanding, more so than just physical strength. That to me, I've done a lot of Tai Chi and and Aikido and Judo and all sorts of different things. It's all about the energy meridian. It's all about density and, and lightness, right? Mm -hmm. So you build the strengthness in the body, but then there's this will that aligns with the centrifugal force, and then the ability to catch that. And it all comes down to the center, the core, core muscles. In essence, let's say. For the physicality of it, take Olympic lifting. Your legs are parallel. You're pressing your thighs out as hard as you can, locking your glutes to your transverse abdominis, rectus abdominis, etc. Lower back, keeping your ribs in, using your lats, and then you throw a bar above your head. Mm -hmm. Take all of that shape and use those same torque mechanisms and turn your legs out, taking your femurs rotated fully from the hip sockets. And it's the same the same structural torque that gives uh, a dancer that kind of power that's why they can jump so high, along with other aspects of physics and the human body and gravity that we, we can access, understanding momentum and weight and trajectory, you know. Yeah. There's only two movements, in essence. There's bend and there's extend. Uh -huh. And then there's adding the third-dimensional wherever direction you take those things into on top of that. So how long as you, as you were started your first professional show, did you start to understand all of that stuff? You didn't learn it in three weeks, did you? No way, man. I got a lot of it um, was what I've learned is that it's already there being mm -hmm. raised in a theater. You know, as I watched people go through all of this training as a child, I was in, you know, on the tour buses with my parents until my brother was born, really, when when I was five. And so I was always in class. I was always backstage. I was always around people doing these feats of collaboration and physicality. Um, and hearing, I heard every note you could hear in the classical ballet world 
I heard before I danced ever, before I danced. I mean, I, I was always dancing. I was around really free spirited, amazing nature oriented dancer people, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> hippies, but not necessarily hippies, more like off the grid, intelligent, Northwestern Idaho and backwoods type people who just happen to be artists, you know? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> and also then thus be in cities and et cetera, et cetera. Like that's something, the balance and all of that, you know, call physics or some form of understanding takes a long time to learn. And you had a jump start on it. I had a jump start on it mentally. Physically, right. physically, I broke myself for the first. 10-ish years of dancing, 8 to 10 years of dancing. I broke myself. Man, I walked with a cane. I mean, my entire life is a life full of injuries. I skateboarded all sorts of wrestling, crazy trampoline accidents, you know, yeah, <laughs> mountain biking accidents. You know, and so the dancing thing, I had all the notes in my mind. I knew everything I needed to know in my mind. But I had only trained my body three weeks a year. The rest of my years were spent doing track and field, martial arts, whatever else, you know, hanging out with homies. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you... Yeah, at what point did you make it a profession or, or decide to study it, practice it, and like kind of devote yourself to it? Once I stopped doing, once I stopped believing in the flow that I'd created in myself that I needed to go to school and be a certain type of person in the institutionalized world, I was gearing myself toward being an architect, things like that in high school. And I realized after that first show that none of those other things that I was working on in my life could compare to the depth of the experience of being a part of the creative process with the choreography, with music, with other dancers for an audience, and then going through that process of really giving that for an audience. You know, so I was 17 when I did that first show. Um, with the professional, with the rest of the professional company. And it really clicked like, oh, mentally, egoically, I'm working toward a certain direction that I believe is what I need to do. Mm -hmm. Doing that show, my body said, my body, my being said, hey, this is the only thing that's going to be able to fulfill all the aspects of what you do as a person. Yeah. You know? So do this, otherwise you'll never be happy. You know, that's what, what I was seeing is that I was gearing myself toward business and da, 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 those kinds of things. I was becoming more of a grumpy type person. And it's like, I don't want to be this. Yeah. <laughs> I want to I wanna give things and share, collaborate and play. And you said you broke yourself for the first while, injuries. Be so what kinds of injuries or what impact does dancing have on the body? Um, mostly strains. And very, very weird injuries. Most dancers have really extreme, unique injuries because of the types of range of motion we go through. Mm -hmm. You know, you're at the extreme range of motion of every single joint that you have in your body in certain choreography and weight bearing while moving at breakneck, breakneck speed at, in certain times, you know. And so the types of injuries that tend to happen usually are overuse. What I've learned recently is the reason why I've had so many injuries is the tendency to not sleep enough. Really? Sleep is the most important thing before diet before anything sleep sleep seven hours at the minimum or you know making sure you hit that REM cycle there's a really great book Matthew Walker I think is the the scientist the sleep scientist who did all the stuff and this is a really good interview with Joe Rogan and him okay but I realized recently that oh my gosh I used to have a photographic memory I could ace every test I that's part of why I in high school I dropped out it's like I could look at information keep it in my mind 
and ace a test. So I never did a single bit of homework, so I had all Fs, even though I could ace all my tests. Okay. You yeah. <laughs> and But then that photographic memory, as I was in my 20s, was going away, and a lot of it was that I stopped studying, and I focused all of that into movement and music and things like that. And so it was very much, it's still alive in those spaces that have become very keen aesthetic. But the ability to see a sheet of paper, read it through, and then close my eyes and still see that sheet of paper and read it through, you know, like that faded because of lack of sleep. Hmm. In his, the, the information in, in that book that these scientists found, uh, there's a level of sleep deprivation that correlates directly to uh, quantity of injuries in, in athletes, in any athlete, right? So if you get under people who got seven hours of sleep had a certain amount of injuries per capita, people who got six on average, people who got five, people who got four, people who got three. My tendency was to sleep three to five hours a night for like most of my, since, since I was around 15 years old, I just couldn't stop. You know, I'd go dance all day and go to school and then go hang out and play music till one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning and get up and go work at a coffee shop, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> coffee is the best job for a dancer, man. You wake up early, get all your coffee world, money, money world stuff done, and then you have the rest of the day to teach, dance, choreograph, whatever. It's great. And that's what you do now, right? That's what I do now, yeah. And where do you work? What coffee? Dawson Taylor downtown is the location that I work at as a barista. I worked packing coffee for them for a while. I blew my knee out with a dance company in 2016 and didn't have workman's comp or insurance, which is fine. I was able to rebuild my body's ability to do it. Like my meniscus slips in and out. I, a couple times on stage, had to push my meniscus back in, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> exactly. We got to know a little bit. Wait, more right, wait how, like, how did I tangent to that? How did I just tangent to that? Is, the, is then... the meniscus going <laughs> it, side to side or front and back? It goes, it goes at an angle from my patella tendon toward the front, but to the left, to the inside. And then you... And yeah, a couple times I've had... And then once that. you do that, though, that I mean, there's still pain, like tenderness, that's what's, right? Or That's what's weird. When I got this injury... Um, it didn't hurt at all. It just wouldn't move. My knee locked, right? So the injury was a whole day experience. I got two hours of sleep after touring up to Sun Valley. I woke up really early to teach a class with one of the other dancers that happened to be really intense in hip hop, right? So I was really low, but I hadn't gotten any sleep, so my body couldn't really do it. Then we went to rehearsal for two hours. I had a couple moments in that rehearsal where some weird things happened where a girl jumped on my chest and I went to squat and fall and my body wouldn't squat. I just fell, right? And that was sort of weird, but I didn't acknowledge it. These are, these are all the things I thought about after it finally went, Yeah. right? So then I go and eat lunch and I come back and I'm, or I teach ballet. And while I'm teaching ballet, I'm showing the students, don't do this, meaning I was turning my foot or my lower leg out from the knee down to my foot I turned out from my knee and it went 40 degrees farther than my body has ever naturally gone like my you started the motion and it just kept yeah kept going and then my knee was bent you know so I bent my knee and I showed them don't do this and then so my foot usually moves about you know let's see let's see let's look at it okay let's do it so from the knee it usually moves about that much which is yeah two just, inches yeah, right? like it a moved, standard. It moved to 90 degrees 
to my femur. <laughs> and I looked down and I was like, oh, that's weird. It didn't hurt. Right? So I finished teaching ballet class, go eat lunch, come back, teach a hip hop class. As I'm taking my shoe off, I step. Bam! I couldn't do anything with my knee. That's where the pain was. That's when the pain finally hit. And I had no idea what happened. You know? Hmm. So because of being a dancer, never having insurance, never being able to go to doctors to fix illnesses, I've always used physical therapists. And luckily, Michael Devitt at Focus Physical Therapy has donated thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of PT to the dance community. He's amazing. He's the reason, in a lot of ways, why I still move. Um, the things I experienced with him, seeing him a couple times a week for almost eight years straight when I was really had back to the why I was injured, lack of sleep, a mind that knew what a body needed to look like, and a body that hadn't been truthfully trained to be in those positions, so I forced my body in those positions. I could make those positions happen, but my muscles weren't loose enough. My tendons were, my tendons were what was taking all of that stretch rather than the muscles necessarily. Huh. Right, so constant creation of, of jamming and, and, and micro tears within all of my ligament structure and, and muscular structure. Um, Michael Devitt, however, continually giving me exercises. It took more than eight years. Really? For me to figure out the truth of why I was always injuring myself was that I move from my mind and the external tips, fingers, and toes inward. So I'm moving from way out here in these leverage places rather than from the core, from the pelvis, from the spine outward. You know, every tradition, it's all in the hips. It's all, I don't know that, that that's the movie Dogma or what that is, but it's all <laughs> in the hips, right? Yeah. It's, it is all in the hips. It's all in the pelvis. It's all in the center. It's all in the Dantian. It's all in your sacral chakra. That is the center in the Toltec tradition, South America, like shaman tradition. That's the center of will. Not like intellectualized will, but literally physical will in space-time. The will of the body, the will of the person. You know, so once that clicked, you know, I'd been doing PT constantly, other crazy car accidents, getting hit by a car on my bicycle, going paralyzed two weeks later, like <laughs> things like that caused me to kick into, for the first time, this was in my late 20s, early 30s, kick into gear the fact that I have to do PT, like have to on my own for, at that point, because of going paralyzed, it was probably the freakiest thing that has ever happened to me in my life. Um, on top of that, having the mind frame of my uncle is a quadriplegic who broke his neck in college. He was mm -hmm. a star football player and crazy party one night and broke his neck. Wow. <laughs> right. Gosh. So this, this so, all came from asking you about coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interrelated, man. It, it's, it's, yeah. it, you can't so you separate had, it all out. But you had gotten injured, blew out your knee, and then is that when you... That's like, when I went back to coffee. I started in coffee uh, in 1999, right when I started dancing, right when I yeah. left school. It was like, no, I can do That's this well. coffee shop job, which fits perfect. And I was working at Plantation Country Club as a, a waiter, bartender. Well, not at 18. Once I was 19, I started doing like like beverage cart, things like that. Yeah. You know? And that was awesome because I love golf, man. Get to walk around outside and whack a ball on greens. That's what that guy. Really? Zach's yeah. all about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm a big golfer. Dude, I love it. It's fun. It's gigantic pool. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I know? think there's like a frustration point, like if you're really like hitting like some sort of thing where you're not improving or not enjoying mm -hmm. it. 
because like there can but as long as you're out there in the outdoors beautiful golf course yeah and you know you're hitting some good shots it's always enjoyable well for me at that point i was basically getting paid for it yeah exactly (laughs) you know i got paid to be there (laughs) so with all the performances you've done what is a highlight that stands out that is like your favorite experience being a dancer and then maybe if there's like a the craziest thing you've ever seen if you will as a dancer Whoa. sorry i just saw i'm gonna go there first because i okay, just saw the fine. image and Please it made me do. cringe uh <laughs> we we did a dance good. where we used these poles it's like staffs um you know plant them on the ground and do flying jumping things with them like spinning around or we would do some okay. spinning and then one of those spinning type plant moves that was also incorporating a jump meaning like pole vaulting in a yeah <clears throat> One of my dancer friends slipped the pole, planted his hand, and broke his wrist with the pole. Oh, and it was just geez. like, you could see instantly both bones. I broke a wrist. He did oh. that? Zach's done that before. Not with Ooh, a pole. Like that? Like falling off a cliff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, falling off cliffs. <laughs> Bone shot through. Ooh. Yeah. Damn. yeah so that's rough. one of those moments where you're like, oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's in the middle of it. Was that a rehearsal? That's another a one of those or a, or a, um, This is the thing. Nobody gets injured on stage necessarily. I've seen a few oh, injuries okay. on stage, but per capita, most injuries actually happen completely outside of the dance studio. Yeah. Most injuries for dancers, like this is what Carl Rowe, one of the old artistic directors of Idaho Dance Theater, would say I'm going to bubble wrap you people because we would always get hurt being human. You know, when you're not paying attention, when you're not working hard on all these super technical movement sequences aligned with very specific rhythmic patterns, you know, that's when we stub our toes on the bed and, and <laughs> it's black and blue and you can't use your foot for a week. Yeah. <laughs> Though yeah. we're dancers, so we don't not use our foot for, you know, especially in that generation. We always, there's never understudies in the companies I've danced with. If you get injured, we figure out how to make the choreography work. That's oh, most really? most small dance companies that aren't big, huge you know, private money funded places. That's it's like no matter what, we're injured, we're gonna keep going or make it work, especially if there's a show and there's no understudy. Very few occurrences have I seen where somebody was injured enough to where we had to pull them out of the show fully. And there's mm-hmm. no there's no official second string. Never, almost never. Wow. You know, not not in, which that's why I would work with a small company though cuz it's so real it's so warrior like you know it's like you're making this happen on very minimal money everybody has to have other jobs you know every dancer i know that isn't with a company that's got really great funding you know the dancers i know are making really authentic honest straightforward totally individual and unique work are very minimally funded because yeah. they're doing it when they can because they're the true passion, you know. They're the ones making the best work out there, too. Do you have a desire to ever go into one of those big funded companies or do you prefer to be with the... I prefer creation. Yeah. So if, if somebody decided that they liked my choreographic style and, and had a grip ton of money with a huge company, you know, like it'd be great to choreograph on New York City Ballet or American Ballet Theater or the Netherlands Dance Theater, you know. Though, or Paris Opera Ballet, though, and sometimes I've watched documentaries where I'm watching the choreographer move and qualities on some of these major famous dancers, but it's more contemporary work, and the ballet dancers sometimes don't necessarily have that quality in their body. And so for me, it's like, you it doesn't matter 
For me as a dancer, the most important thing is to be able to merge with any style. There's the truth. We're shapeshifters. You shapeshift with the music. You shapeshift with your character. You have to be able to change the quality of a movement frequency and your intention behind those things. You know? Question. Do it. You've mentioned several times emotionally connecting or connecting with the audience and it's beyond just them watching and viewing it and you know i started that by saying emotionally how do you emotionally connect with the audience we have mirror neurons. how do you go beyond science okay tell us <laughs> science about uh i mean well scientifically we have mirror neurons we can learn by watching other people do something Right, so mm-hmm. I learned that in a city company workshop with Ann Bogart. That that's, that company is the most amazing training on the planet. Who was that? The uh, city company training, uh, or Tadashi Suzuki's company uh, in Japan, uh, which I don't remember what it's called at the moment. Um, that training is so astounding. But the truth is, connecting with an audience is about being you on stage. You're doing something on stage. You're the person there in that character doing the tasks at hand. You have tasks to do. Those simple tasks the audience organizes into story. If you have a super abstract movement sequence, some every audience member will have a different idea of what that means. And then there's the overarching energy of the emotion you can put on top of that. The, then you're telling the audience what the emotion means versus letting them be a part of that. You know, so letting audiences be intelligent. You're being there with them experiencing. You're feeling the emotions of what you're going through on stage. You're doing what you're doing. They are watching. You can't help but feel things when you watch other humans go through things, you know? Mm-hmm. And if the movement sequence, let's say the movement sequence itself contains shapes that go from someone who is strong, balanced, down into someone who's been broken down. If you watch someone go through that sequence of the way the body looks from being a powerful, balanced human down into a depressed, pain-filled, emotional wreck of a person... You can feel that because every one of us knows what that feels like. And if we don't, then maybe you just learned a little bit what that feels like via all the other people around you feeling that person via the imagery that they just portrayed feeling in their system. You know, everything is montage, man. You can put any image next to any image. And we as humans will organize it into a story. You could put any image. The image of that curtain with that lamp, this microphone and a dog outside and somebody will turn that into a story you know yeah how long would it take you to teach somebody like dusty limited dance experience to be (laughs) able to put on a performance a satisfactory performance you're putting on one right now Wait, so so I if met you. If you had to judge Taft. his performance, what would you say <laughs> it is? I'd say he's very customer service savvy and can communicate really well. There you, you go. Right? I'm yeah, a customer he's... service person. Dance is customer service. Everything we do is interaction of humans, right? It's relationship. Whether you're relating to a rock or a person, yeah. you're still relating to something when you're choosing to relate, right? I met you at Taft. Yep. What do you do there? Teach first grade. That is performance all day, every day. Teaching, Absolutely. <laughs> teaching teaches, taught me, teaching taught me everything I know about the stage. 
Yeah. Being on stage with an audience, that's a class. I have heard it said that teaching is, I think it's one quarter preparation, three quarters performance. Yeah. Which I totally agree with. I mean, I've, I prepare, but most of the day I am in some form performing for the kids, trying to get them engaged yep. in what I'm teaching them and trying to yeah. get this kid to smile and trying to that get makes this kid a lot to of stop sense. crying. Yeah. And Especially with young, like elementary age, it's like now that I think about it, it, it probably feels like you're on stage. All day. You know, on but, stage. And- but again, like it's something that I'm meant to do. Right. And oh, get me in front go. of kids. Okay. No problem. Get yeah. me in front of adults. Exactly. Totally different. So like, I do not okay. like to perform exactly. or do that for adults. It just doesn't feel. I saw easy. you do that a little bit at the fragrance festival, but yeah. you, I mean, fragrance I had to festival. hype you up. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. This is from a previous <laughs> podcast, Eric. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. So the whole thing of adults versus kids, I've done 20 years of this. <laughs> time that I got into, the, not 20 years, at the time I got into the city company workshop and I had this fear of speaking, I had done 36 to 50 school shows a year starting 2001, 2002, until the point in time that I was doing this. Mm-hmm. And what clicked for me with the adult audience, how to really do it was to just stick to the truth of the techniques that I was had learned in the Suzuki classes of where to put pressure on my body in relation to the voice, in relation to the words that are coming out, versus like acting too much on top of the body. Um, yeah. But in my mind, I just chose to, I'm the teacher. And as soon as I was the teacher, as soon as I had merged, I am teaching these people this world of this play just by being here and being in it. But as soon as I did that, all of that fear was instantly gone because it's like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Right. You know, I know what I'm doing. These people don't. They are the students. They're being there, being the witness, watching, thus being the student. And it was just like, oh, there we go. Got it. You know, because I started teaching it at 18, you know, right away as a dancer. So you teach classes. How often are you teaching a class? These or? days, just two days a week at Boise State for fall semester and then four days a week in spring semester, men's ballet technique class in ballet one. Okay. Um, I just got to go teach a really great little class out at Methods of Movement down in Mountain Home, which is a wonderful little spot. And I'm going to hopefully get to go out there a bunch more because those kids are great. It's a yeah. great little spot. And it's close. Yeah. yeah, it's not that far away. What about uh, productions? <clears throat> like, So you have your teaching schedule or commitments and things that you're doing. What about how many different um, productions are you in, whether they're, you know, on the stage or maybe festivals, that type of thing? What's your time commitment there per year? Well, since doing the thing to my knee in 2016, which happened to be right at the same time as buying my house, really stressful, I tell you what. Absolutely. Um, I'm in a lot less than I used to be in. Um, it's I've been in an interim the last three-ish years, you know, trying to first of all buying a house that's a fixer upper and trying to figure out how to do that with minimal time and minimal money you know and then healing this need this last show with idt was the first show that i felt fully physical cape fully physically capable for the first time in three years you know where my knee didn't slip at all the meniscus didn't slip it didn't lock it didn't do anything weird and i felt just i felt like i had never had that knee injury for the first time um before that a man i did International Dance Festival in Seattle with Cyrus Kambada and um, 
not with him. He's he's the person that sort of throws it on. He has a dance company out there called Kambada Dance. Mm-hmm. You know, dance with my friend Monamu, who's from West Africa. I love doing West African dance. It's one of the most, personally, one of the most important genetic things to experience as a dancer, man. West Why Af- is that? It is the fastest, smiliest, happiest, most physically intense at the same time as loving experience of any dance form. You know, it's the technique, there are techniques, they're physical techniques, but for the most part, it's not about that at all. It's about this soul of the drums, you know, the dance and the soul of the drums, the soul. It's so, man, it's amazing. Well, and you, so Eric, I met Eric because at Taft, he comes over on Fridays mm-hmm. in the mornings and for what, maybe 20 minutes? 30 minutes 30 at the minutes. most, yeah. <laughs> um, all the kids, we have drums set up. And he leads a big drum circle with any kid that wants to come in, and it's, from it's, whatever grade level, it's so unique. Yeah. <laughs> it is so unique. You watch him, and it's so unique. He's got some kids from Africa, uh-huh. some not. Because it's a Title One school, yet, right? Yep. Yeah. And so we have a bunch of refugees, but he's in there teaching some of the beats, and there's kids playing, and then there's kids, tons of kids watching. Right. And he's in there just leading these drum circles, and and letting these kids experience these beats and in the flow of how this is supposed to work. Well, and how to use a djembe in yeah. particular in specific, you know, like how to hit, how to hit it, how to actually get the three different, the three main sounds that, that you should be able to get out of the djembe. Oh man. Yeah. It's so fun watching those kids. This last Friday, was that last? No, Thanksgiving was last week. Uh, the Friday before, it was the first time we had that whole room humming at the same tempo for a long time. It was so good. Yeah, it was fun. So that's where I, where I met him, but um, one reason we de- we decided, like, hey, we got to get you on this podcast because you just have so much joy for what you do, <laughs> which you don't find that too many No, that's places, what I, right? I'm loving right. about this conversation. and is It's just so much. It's what yeah. you're supposed to do, and when you find that one thing you're supposed to do, it's like everything's right. right. Everything is Every, right. No, I, everything is right. It's just not necessarily easy or smooth or fun sometimes. Though, right. even in the hardest times, in essence, it's still fun because you're alive. Right. Yes. You know? If it sucks, you're still alive. And that's Or if you still amazing. have some sort of control over your decisions. Right. And what, what you can do, what makes you happy. Yeah, yeah. Never, gives never you definitely. some sort of fulfillment. Yeah. So and I, there is sometimes, we've talked about it, you know, maybe not recently, but in the fall, like in struggle or working through tough things, there's also greatness that can come from that too. So much growth in struggle. Yeah. Sometimes we don't want to go into the pain or go into yeah. something that's tough because of maybe fear or just wanting to be comfortable. But then when you do force yourself to go in there, like, oh my gosh, I actually did like that. I like it when I push myself. The, I like it when I get into discomfort. Yeah. Because screw comforts. Comfort's easy. Everybody knows comfort. Comfort yeah. is a slow death. Comfort is a slow comfort death. Exactly. Slow... There we go. Well, and uncomfort and is Come on, get, your let's body. get rid of that. Your yeah. body says, I want this. I'm rereading the Carlos Castaneda series, uh, Don Juan, Iacuwe, Knowledge, etc. And <clears throat> the shaman, Don Juan, says, there's a reason you keep coming back to me. It's because your body likes it. Your body likes to be afraid. Your body likes to be on these edges of reality. Your body likes to go through this stuff. Being comfortable, is, it is what's killing us. It's what kills us. It's what makes us go crazy. I'm, at the coffee shop, there's a lot of old retired men. 
Mm -hmm. that come hang out every single day. I wonder how well they would do when they retire. It's like, if you don't have something to do when you retire, and this is what they say about each other, if you don't have something to do, there's people that die within three months after retiring because Absolutely. they have nothing to do with Jeez themselves. Yeah. You know? So and it's, it's kind like, of like being a creature of habit, but also a creature of comfort. Well, and, and then a creature of habit is what we should train rather than letting the habits train us, right? Oh, there you go. Because you know, yes. that's, I'm a smoker. I've been smoking since I was 11 years old. Everybody smoked when I was a kid. It was super easy. I roll my own tobacco. I smoke really good papers, you know, but I'm still an addict. I've created that habituation from such a young age. It's a part of every facet of my life, mm -hmm. you know, and I have control sometimes. Sometimes I don't have control. Sometimes it's really enjoyable. Sometimes it's utterly unenjoyable and I still do it. And that's where the habit has control of me, you know, and it's like to break that kind of habit is a really intensive, powerful rehabituation. And I've been researching this forever because it, it doesn't matter how much I know. I can know as much as I want about this habit and how to break it. It takes the steps, the little right. teeny, teeny little steps. And when I can make so many little teeny steps that I've creased the little teeny neural pathway that, that takes me around the choice to smoke rather than the choice to smoke, you know, it's like I love looking at neural pathway development, muscular development, everything we do, we're training the creases of our neural pathways. The more you use it, you're hollowing it out. It's a canyon. It's the Grand Canyon if you've used it so much in your life that it's like a major neuropathway. So then how are you going to all of a sudden take and make another canyon that, that'll circumvent that humongous chasm? Yeah. It's so much... This is a funny thing. It's so much effort, and the truth of the matter is it's the easiest thing ever to change. It just has to take going, nah. It's so weird. But yeah. it's so hard. It's so because what what happens is nah, and then a second later the other voice clicks back in. Yeah, so you had that nah, yeah. and, it, and it happened, and then the oh wait. <laughs> yeah, when you have when you build that up, and you get that oh let's switch back. There has to be some sort of resistance there. Yeah. Um, determination. On a more light note, Yurik, what do you smoke? Are you a Lucky Strike guy? No, are you... I do not smoke anything tailor-made because in America, what they are allowed to put in the papers of tobacco is extra, extra, extra chemicals. Especially now so that they you feel make like papers you to not You burn. smoke, but not the bad stuff. So what I do smoke, you smoke for I mean, it's, it's the still... listeners that maybe want to have a clean Dude, smoke? Norwegian shag in an OCB organic hemp paper. I'll need to research more about that. I have no idea what that means. Peter, Peter Stockaby is the company of tobacco that I found that I, I like the most. It's still tobacco. I think it's probably 100% tobacco rather than... Okay, I went to Paris a couple of years ago. When I got back, the FDA had just done all this testing on all these things around the country. You know, wild harvested honey now has pesticides in it. You know, yeah. Tobacco, certain cigarettes had 75% not tobacco. 25% cattle... No, I'm not even going to put it percent. No, there was cattle bone matter in the tobacco, right? Wow. So, so how in the world are you going to use filling filler for these cigarettes to make them extra cheap, and then you coat them in chemicals so they're still addictive, rather than just letting people smoke tobacco? You know, it's like it's really changed over the years. It, it sounds like I remember when it changed. I remember when milk changed. Man, I drank so much milk as a kid, and then one day it tasted weird, and they. had 
done some over milking process. You know, it's like at that point we had such a huge community and the milk was. What age were you at for that? Twelve ish, eleven, twelve. So so, so 90 93, 94. Okay. You remember that dusty? The milk. But I also changing? remember nope. cigarettes changing. I remember because I started smoking at eleven, so I was smoking in you know ninety two. You're here in touch with some of your senses, your body, um, the taste, the emotions that Dusty and I have not quite experienced yet. Yurik, you've told us a lot about art, dance. You're, it's been a extremely interesting conversation. And based on a couple of the tangents, like you were saying, <laughs> I want to know what's the craziest thing you've ever seen in your life? Craziest thing I've ever seen. Just the most wild interaction you've ever had or thing you've been a part of or witnessed. I think you've got a great story that you need to share with us. That's <laughs> what I'm getting at. I would agree with Zach. Gosh, I don't know. I really didn't even know how to frame that other than just tell us something amazing from your life experience. Well, what, you went to and Africa. It could Africa, be, hitchhiking. Oh, what, uh, what? Oh, hitchhiking. come on. Yes. Here we go. Winning dance competitions with Lauren Edson's first rendition of her company. Um, that was amazing. That was amazing. That was an amazing experience. Flew into Palm Desert. We'd been working this dance piece. It's one of my favorite dance pieces ever called Two Against One. Um, how long had you been working on this? I mean, ideally, professional dancers, you can get together two weeks before a show and have a fully... You can get together with a truly professional dancer three days before a show, two days before, or the day of a show, and make it work. Really good theater and dance artists could create a show. You know? Yeah. We have, especially professionals that have a lifetime of experience creating different kinds of works. And being a part of the creative process versus being the part of the being given dance to you process. Like classical ballet, you're going to learn this dance versus we're in space together for hours a day working with our bodies and each other to accomplish the right feeling with this music and the choreographer's ideas and then what's actually possible in space and time. You know, mm. so, so this group was amazing. It was Jason Hartley, Lauren Edson, myself, Oh my gosh, uh, Phyllis Afrunti, Kaylin O'Shea was the one, the person that was at that show, um, and I think Sayoko Node was at that show. It was astounding, though, man. Like the way we didn't care. And this about winning. You we were didn't saying care about, about winning. So was it a festival competition? It was a choreographer uh, competition. Okay, competition. So, and Lauren submitted this work, and a bunch of locals because we did a Kickstarter supported us and funded us to be able to do this. Um, it's all I was doing at that point. When I joined with them, I had been doing freelance for a little while. I always do IDT shows because I can fit it into my schedule. Um, but I was, you know, doing stuff up in Seattle and, and had just gone to Africa, things like that. But like in production, you're not always competing. Like you were saying that right. earlier. Like but even you're this, doing it's not a competition. it for yourself, for the yeah. audience. And like on this one, though, there was an award that was going to be given out. Right. What did that add any not pressure? For us. Or? Not for us. But we didn't okay. care. We didn't. You're just we, doing we the best you so can. We were so happy that we okay. got to do this 
But, you know, like for me, it's like it was the first time doing something like that because I'm not a competition type person. I'm not going to go do a dance competition and, and get those kind of emotions in my system where I need to win something, you know. But so going down and doing this and having being totally funded and getting to fly planes and hang out with really wonderful people, you know, Lauren and Andrew are phenomenal people. Jason Hartley, came, there's such, all the people were so good. You know, we just went in there and, and had the time of our lives. We danced to that and just danced it. It was, it was a trip how, so I watched the video afterward. There were, in my mind, there were all these little momentary mistakes that we had done on stage. But on the video, it was imperceptible, mm -hmm. meaning nobody could see the mistakes that I was perceiving in my mind, meaning we had gotten so deeply invested in that piece that it was actually slow. The music was slow. The fast, the fast sequences were so full of awareness that it wasn't me going through a fast sequence. I had time to think while in the middle of doing all this in a way that was on a level that I hadn't quite ever truthfully experienced before. And we just time had time was slowing down in the moment or when you like, watched like, it like back? in a car accident. Oh wow. Now you <laughs> mentioned earlier too that like you had a girlfriend pull you oh. off stage with an injury. Tell us about like the love life of the studio. Like is it taboo it's to be dating no. people that are in your production or I mean, does that my, happen like my very parents, often like my you have lovers each other. okay and they were Whoa, yes, yes yes they married you each other so that. they could sleep together on tour rather than being forced into separate rooms you know they got married go. so they could actually that's stay that's together. the old days though i'm talking right. about your time frame like what is the, i'm an old day type person right now though <laughs> i'm an old day type person man i'm overly respectful i was raised around 99 percent women I was raised around 99% women. They're the most important thing in the world. Women, you know, in the sense of caring for, protecting, and especially from the world that we've come out of, these, these older cultures and these patriarchies, you know. So I'm overly safe, sometimes overly shy. If I really like somebody, I'm overly shy, right? The dating in the studio, like, people get together. People hook up. Sometimes there's drama. It's, it's a... Is there drama? That's what I want to there hear. There can about. be, but, but what's what more important? Is that? What's more important is the show. So it doesn't matter what drama happens; you're still going to end up getting on stage together. Okay. And if you let your drama with each other show on stage, then you're failing as 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 an artist. Mm -hmm. You know, if you as use, a professional, if you yeah, use your artist. drama on yeah. stage as energy, that's a whole different oh, level. Okay. You know, because it's energy. All energy. Everything is just energy. It's just frequencies. You know, you can't see it, but it's the truth. You know, so it's like if somebody's really pissed, you can use that energy and, and, and intentionally focus it in a direction of usefulness. Dusty, what other that. things before we wrap up here? Any other questions you have? Uh, I did ask a few people, you know, what would you like to know from Yurik? And um, let's see. The other one was when you choreograph a show... How long does that take you to get in the place? Because we talked to our friend Trevor, who is a songwriter, and he said some songwriters just go business-like, like, I'm going to start here, I'm going to end at this time. I'm going to do that every day until it, it clicks. And some songwriters are, it just clicks, and that's when I start writing. So when you are going to choreograph something, what's the approach to that? <laughs> and does it change for different songs or there's some you're more yeah. connected with yeah. and some that you have to get into a lot of the times it's the music that creates the initial idea 
um, especially in the first years of choreography, I'd hear a song and it would just make me see movement. You know, and, and so then, but then uh, my issue is I see movement that's impossible <laughs> for, <laughs> for 90% of humans to do. Like the kind of things I see for, that merge between classical ballet, acrobatics, and break dancing to capoeira, you know, like yeah. merging those styles in a way that's not, that's not separate, you know, like half, most dancers can't do that. Classical ballet dancers definitely aren't going to be able to do a, a you know, a, a backflip for the most part. There's, there's, that's totally different now. You know, and this mm -hmm. is this is 15 years ago that I'm talking. You know, um, and like as you're listening, hired. are you like thinking about how many different people are involved in it as well? And... Well, that's always variable because sometimes okay. you don't know. Most of the time, I choreograph like on Idaho Dance Air, which is where I gained most of my choreographic experience. Um, I knew who I was dancing with. Sometimes it was very dramatic and hard because, you know, there's a lot of energy in the room and all of a sudden this younger person's choreographing them because at that point I was under everybody's age. I was 10 years younger than a lot of people. Hmm. You know, I was dancing with seasoned professionals and, and I was a professional in my mind, but physically not necessarily so. Um, <clears throat> so typically it's music that creates the initial idea just makes me see movement but then getting into the studio with, with the dancers is what defines what's actually possible i learned really young that i can't prepare for teaching mm -hmm. and then expect to ever get to everything because i never do i'll prepare a 45 minute class and end up spending the 45 minutes on the first exercise right because that's what the students need you know so letting go of expectations as a choreographer has helped me a lot because then when I want to see a perfect triple pirouette into a fuete back attitude um, turn and I have a dancer that can't do that, I have to be able to change. If I, Especially if I'm choreographing on students, which is, I do a lot of choreography on students for Summer Dance Festival and then uh, uh, Footlight up in Haley and then uh, Methods of Movement, you know. Um, and you mentioned that before, like instead of being rigid and saying this is the choreography you must learn it which is what it used to be and yeah exactly <laughs> very like building so. it is building it towards the skill set and, the, yeah. and the knowing the talent and that you have or the person kind of, that's going to be doing it. that's become a necessity you know in the back in the day we had a lot more hardcore ballet dancer trained people that's sort of waning and moving into more of these contemporary trainings but classical ballet is the most important training understanding the techniques that classical ballet knows about the body and then thus lets you know about the body. It's the most important information in the sense of how to use the floor into that tondu, with anybody even knows what that means, you know, the extension of a flat foot to the extended pointed toe, right? So then that extension to the disengaged toe, the degage, which is where your, your foot comes off the ground, and then to more energy to where you kick that higher into a botman, into a grand botman to where, you know, some of the girls can actually kick themselves in the face with their, their knee or their femur because they're so flexible and so strong. Classical ballet teaches so much inside the body about torque mechanisms and momentum and physics, you know, while incorporating character, awareness of audience perspective, why you're looking here. You know, there's so much, it's so codified. Classical ballet is so codified. It's, it's extremely important. Um, <laughs> but as the world changes and there's less of that and more of more 
coordinated natural human movements incorporated into some of these dances so that it's more accessible because that's where we really are as people. You know, that's the interesting thing about watching a traditional classical ballet. It can only, I have a really hard time enjoying it. Most classical ballet dancers or trained classical ballet dancers have a hard time watching classical ballet unless it's perfect. Mm. I'm, re I'm really good at suspending disbelief because I usually know people on stage that I'm watching. And so even if they screw up, it's like I, I don't let myself be jaded. I was so jaded and hated watching dance all the way until I was in my mid-20s and really realized, oh, when I, about when I stopped self-punishing and accepting compliments after a show also. This is when it's like, oh, people see what people are going to see. People can do what people are going to yeah. do. And we have to be able to merge with that. And sometimes the people that get it the hardest from the teachers are the ones that have the potential or end up being the ones that never do any of the work. Hmm. Those are the two facets of the kids or, or adults or whoever get the hardest attacking from people when it comes to that vibe. Is you have the most potential, you're not doing the work, or you just have not put any of the work in and you're still coming back. Will you please stop coming back if you're not going to put the work in? You yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking about different people seeing you know, a different thing or getting... You know, having an individualized experience, I have three daughters, mm. age seven, five, and three, and it's a tradition to go to Nutcracker. So they're mm. going to do that yeah. in a couple weeks, um, you know, with the Which holiday Valley season. Which Valley Nutcracker is great, and I love their new artistic director. Oh, perfect. Oh, man, he's wonderful. Those, that's such a good group of people. Well, man. the thing I, I was going to ask you is, like, what can I tell them to look for? Or, like, what would Nothing. you advise somebody as a kid, like, to say... Like, what questions would you ask them afterwards to understand the experience? Or would, like, is it just any open-ended question or any, like, lead-up things to, like, look for this or that? Or yeah, afterwards, hey, what'd you think of this or that? What would your... I would say more ask what they saw. Okay. That's all. I mean, what we as adults or somebody with us maybe a more educated mind frame might understand about something and then we tell that to somebody else before they witness it for themselves influences how they're going to see. I mean, we, we know we can affect quantum physics experiments by our just looking at it, you know? So if you give the information necessarily before, that's like, like I, I did not, I purposely did not listen to this podcast before coming and hanging out with you guys. Because I wanted it to be real for me as a person and a new experience, you yeah. know, and, and I put my, this whole suspension of disbelief in theater, live theater is amazing. You feel people in space. You're not creating all the chemicals in your own mind via watching a video and listening to music on a little tablet or something, you know, you're actually experiencing another human in space time who's an electromagnetic being <laughs> moving and doing things, you know. Um, so letting people observe and then asking what they observed and then collaborating and sharing on what you observed as well. Are you taking your daughters to that? No, that one's a tradition for the ladies. So, okay. uh, their so grandma, should my wife and you should, yeah. Go. So I ask them, <laughs> so the older ones have gone the last couple of years and I've gone with my wife before. And, um, but yeah, maybe that's a good point. Maybe I should go in the future. I, well, they have I think some really it's a little good too late this time, but yeah, yeah. And the time that I went, I enjoyed it. And I guess the point that I, you know, at this point, like what I do is 
just ask them how, what they experienced at the end of it. Yurik, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate the conversation. It's definitely a topic that Dusty and I, when Dusty brought it up, we were so interested in it, but we don't have a ton of, uh, like, information about it. We aren't familiar with it, like, for either of us, no. arts, dance, like some of these things. So just listening to the stories, listening to the different things you said, it definitely feels like this could be a return guest because we almost <laughs> scratched the surface or, you know, we barely, barely scratched the surface. And we here. didn't even, we didn't even go into going to Africa and no. drumming and stuff. Yeah, right? exactly. And so that was amazing. Let's save that one return guest right okay. here for there sure. There you go. Any, uh, closing comments or things that you would say that are important based on what we talked about that you would want our listeners to know about move you're a human being you're supposed to move the the less we move the more we die well yurik what we do at the end of each episode we for sure thank our visitors and what we want to say is thank you so much for letting us know you thank you guys you guys rock this is fun